0: Welcome back, everyone, to the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here, still with you after 246 episodes. We're on to part three this time, still ancient history of Xinjiang. We've seen how China first began engaging the people who called Xinjiang home. There were no borders back then like there are now. Whenever we discuss any aspect of this history of Xinjiang, the ancient cities of modern-day Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan as well. They're all part of this history too, and everything west and east of Xinjiang was all connected via these silk roads that got the heartbeat pumping that led to the first vestiges of global trade. We left off last time with the western Han triumphant in Xinjiang, Huo Qubing and Wei Qing, these two Han Dynasty generals were the Chinese heroes who pushed the Xiongnu out of Xinjiang, or at least north of the Tian Shan, the heavenly mountains that served as this bushy eyebrow above the Tarim Basin. Beginning with Han Wu-Di, and for the next two Western Han Emperors, Zhao and Xuan, the foundations were built and fortified in Xinjiang. That facilitated all the Silk Road trade between China and the rest of the world. But then we'll see, starting with the Han Emperor Yuan, 48 to 33 BCE, after such a magnificent run, the dynasty started to stall. By the time Jesus was doing his preaching in the Holy Land, the Han dynasty hit the skids. One small chapter from the Chinese history of the Xinjiang region happened in 77 BCE, late in the reign of Han Zhao Di. There was a bit of Unrest in the Kingdom of Lolan. Lolan, due to its strategic location, just on the other side of the Hushi corridor, was a very key place for the Han Imperial government. There had been a change in leadership at the top of the kingdom of Lolan, and when no one was looking, the Xiongnu installed a very Hun friendly king, and once that happened, all of a sudden the Han Dynasty began to lose control and influence in Lolan. And when Han envoys were sent there to ask what was going on, they were killed. So Emperor Zhao, not personally, of course, but his court called on a man named Fu Jiezi to lead a black op out west and take out this new pro-xiongnu, king of Lolan. So as I said, 77 BCE, it's now a decade after the death of Han Wu Di, and his youngest son is now the top guy. So Fu laden down with all kinds of expensive gifts, led his entourage west in the direction of Lolan. When he arrived in the provincial gateway to the west, Gansu province, and passed through Dunhuang, he arrived on the outskirts of Lolan. Thereupon, he requested a meeting with the king. It was instantly rebuffed. Fu Jiezi went and demonstrated all kinds of diplomatic humility and said he had been sent all this way to tell the king of Lolan that all China wanted was to let bygones be bygones, and he brought all these gifts from Chang'an, and after putting on a good show, he tempted the king to attend a private soiree he was holding in his encampment. So this Xiongnu puppet leader was wined and dined and entertained by Fu Jietze. And he presented the king with one magnificent gift after another. And the wine kept flowing, and as it happens, the king of Lolan got a little bit too lubricated. And what followed was like the Red Wedding and Game of Thrones. The king was assassinated, decapitated, and Fujitsa sent word to the city inhabitants of the deed just committed, said if anyone tried to resist, the whole might of the Han army would come down on them. And the army was on its way right now. After Fujietze's men lopped off the king of Lolan's head, they hung it in a conspicuous place for all the inhabitants of Lolan to see. Shock and awe, baby. And this ruse worked. There was no cavalry on the way. Fujietze was able to use his wiles to restore Han dominance in that part of eastern Xinjiang. And henceforth, that kingdom of Lolan became known as Shanshan. Shan. And over in Kucha, the leadership was starting to sweat because as far away to the east as Lolan was, it was still too close for comfort, and they knew it was only a matter of time before the Han military showed up. So preemptive action was taken, and the Han garrison out in those parts was attacked and the commander killed. Well, this precipitated a visit to Kucha by another noted Han dynasty envoy named Chang Hui, He's another Western Han hero who, you know, what else, made a name for himself, battling with the Xiongnu. Like Zhang Qian, Fu Jiezi was another one who flew the Han flag out in the Western regions and made valuable alliances and secured territory for the emperor. In 71 BCE, not too long after Fu Jiezi wrote his name into the Book of Han with his exploits in Chang Changhui led 50,000 troops to Kucha to make them pay for what they had done, wiping out that Han garrison. And when Chang Hui arrived in Kucha with his army and demanded an audience with the king of Kucha, this king told Chang Hui that attack against the Han forces and the unfortunate execution of the commander was an act perpetrated by his father, the former king, and that he, the son of the king, was completely innocent of this violent act. Furthermore, This Kuchin king not only distanced himself from his father's actions and politics, he proclaimed his undying admiration for Han culture and civilization and offered his complete allegiance to Emperor Xuan in Chang'an. So he opened the gates to the city and invited Changhui in, and from that moment on, Kucha, like you see with many nations of today, tied its skiff, for better or for worse, to the Chinese state. Let me uh, just mention quickly another of the vanished kingdoms operating in and around Xinjiang during this magnificent time during the Western Han Dynasty was the Kingdom of Wusun. The Wusun were another Indo-European people who had allied themselves with Han China against the occasional Xiongnu threat. Their homeland was where the Yuezhi once roamed, Gansu province, but after the ebb and flow of Xiongnu dominance in and around the Tarim Basin, they ultimately headed up to northwest Xinjiang in and around the Ili Valley. Like others from this time, the Wusun more or less faded into the background between the end of the Han and the start of the Sui. Anyway, back to Kucha. After getting up off his knees, this king of Kucha spent a year in China, soaking up all the culture and Ways the Han rulers managed their great and powerful state, like a lot of people did, he took all this knowledge and experience gained in China and brought it back to his lands in Xinjiang, and did much to fortify and enhance the Kuchin state. And in return, he put the resources of his state at the disposal of the Han military, and they were able to use Kucha as a base to pacify the western regions. And the peace and stability the Han military brought to the region ensured the continued prosperity of Kucha. And it stayed this way pretty much up until the tide began to ebb the closer you got to Wangman and the end of the Western Han. There were a total of 10 Han protectorate generals who ruled in Kucha between 60 BCE and 23 CE. The last protector general was named Li Chong, and he served out west right around the time of Wang Meng's ultimate bloody and gory demise. And one small but interesting thing, in 1928, when archaeologists were digging out west in Xinjiang, they chanced upon Li Chong's carved seal. Everyone had one of those, an official seal that was used in lieu of a signature. That's always something special when archaeologists find these artifacts that corroborate or disavow the prevailing official, long-accepted histories of the time. The one who discovered Li Chong's seal, by the way, was one of the greatest early Chinese archaeologists who specialized in Xinjiang, Huang Wenbi. He worked with Sven Hedin in the 1920s and 30s, exploring all these ancient sites, and did so much to advance the earliest understanding of these lands in northwest China. Anyway, Huang Wenbi's reward for all his great contributions was that he ended up getting hounded to death in 1966 at the age of 73 during the uh, Cultural Revolution. Anyway, in 2007, when they were doing a little civic improvement around Qiuci, where the former Kuchin Kingdom was situated, the construction crew, whilst digging, came upon a Jing Dynasty-era tomb. Jin Dynasty, Western and Eastern, 265 to 420. The tomb was constructed in the Han style, not in the local style of the inhabitants of Kucha. A little more excavation revealed an entire complex with many more tombs, and was found to be many generations of the same Chinese family who were living in Kucha during that terrible time, during the Jin when the Wuhu barbarians were stressing out the northern Han Chinese of the central plain. We remember from past episodes this terror and unrest in the north of China during the eastern Jin dynasty. It's one of the factors that caused the Diochus, Hakka, and Hokkien to get up and go, fleeing in a southerly direction as far away as possible from these fierce nomadic conquerors. There were also Han Chinese who opted to head westward, in the direction of Xinjiang, where it was also believed to be safer and out of harm's way. And those remains, discovered in this tomb in Chiltsu were among that group. So we remember Chang Hui as another military and diplomatic hero of the Han dynasty, who carried the sword for the emperor and pacified much of the Tarim Basin for the country. He died in 46 B.C.E. But despite all this pushback against the Xiongnu, they were still a constant source of stress on the Han dynasty. Part of the whole strategy of taking over Xinjiang was not only to build out the Han empire, but also to deprive the Xiongnu of the rich pickings all around the Tarim and Turpin basins. Without the benefit of these riches, it was believed the Xiongnu would become less of a threat to China. The Xiongnu had done well exploiting the east-west trade along the routes, but now, since about the midway point of the first century BCE, the end of the Republican Rome, the Han Chinese Empire was the dominant force in Xinjiang, with their influence extending all the way into Central Asia. I'm sort of playing fast and loose with the term Xiongnu. They were always a confederation of nomads and not one single unified people. When they were defeated during Han Wu Di's time with his two generals, Huo Bing and Wei Qing, the Xiongnu weren't so much defeated as they were fragmented. And even though they'll be battling the Xiongnu for decades to come, there were some Xiongnu tribes that were actually allied with the Han and weren't as warlike as others. You know, Xiongnu was just this pejorative term the Han Chinese gave to these northern nomads who called the Mongolian steppe their home. A nu was a slave, and Xiong meant fierce. It was a Big umbrella term. But rather than get bogged down in the intricacies of Xiongnu history, I hope you'll pardon me for using it as this one size fits all term for what were mostly the northern Xiongnu. From the years 9 to 23 CE came the ill fated single emperor Xin dynasty, where China's most famous usurper, Wang Mang, tried to restore the shaky foundations of the Han dynasty. And like it is with every change of dynasty or government, Wang Meng sent word out to all neighbors and tribute-paying states that the Han Dynasty was gone, and now it was the Xin Dynasty, and he, Wang Meng, was in charge. He tried to hold on to all those distant lands that had been conquered by the many Han military heroes, but let me say, just as Dan Quayle was no Jack Kennedy, well... Wang Mang was no Han Wu Di. No sooner did Wang Mang's government take over the reins of power when the specter of civil unrest raised its ugly head in core China. To deal with all the crucial problems close to home, Wang Mang's government had to take its eye off the Xinjiang ball. And into this power vacuum came all kinds of opportunities, most notably, of course, for the Xiongnu. But the Chinese didn't stay away from Xinjiang that long. After Wang Mang met his awfully violent end in the year 23, the Han dynasty was restored. And once the dynasty-restoring emperor, Han Guangwu, put the house of Liu back in the driver's seat, Han China started to make a strong comeback. By the time of the Guangwu emperor's son, the hard-working Ming emperor, China... Was locked and loaded and ready to take back what had been lost, and just as Han Wu Di had the benefit of Hua Chu Bing and Wei Qing to be the tip of his spears into Xinjiang, Emperor Ming had the great and heroic father-son team of Ban Chao and Ban Yong. Let's start with the father. He's a little more well known. This was Ban Chao. He lived from 32 to 102 C.E. He came from one heck of an overachieving family. His father and siblings were renowned imperial scholar officials and chief among the compilers of the Book of Han. So Ban Chao at first followed in his father's footsteps, but was inspired to go the military route. And Ban Chao showed a lot of early promise after having acquired a measure of repute following a good first outing against the Xiongnu in 73. Besides his achievements in Xinjiang, Ban Chao is remembered as a strategist of the highest order and famous for winning a lot of battles despite being far outnumbered or in the less advantageous position militarily. He's remembered and lionized in Chinese history for the fight he led out in Xinjiang for 30 years, warring with the Xiongnu and restoring the Tarim Basin to Han China control. Ban Chao's military and diplomatic exploits saw him extend Han-China influence beyond Xinjiang, as far west as the Caspian Sea. However, from a practical standpoint, the western regions, as far as China was concerned, was centered in and around the Tarim Basin. Beyond that, it was still too far away to project even a semblance of real power. But it's important to remember those lands in present-day Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, they were also integral to this Chinese history, but not nearly as important as the Tarim Basin. It was written in the Book of Han that Ban Chao had subdued and controlled the 36 kingdoms of the Western regions. The 36 kingdoms. Well, they were a collection of small city-states of various sizes and wealth, each run like a monarchy. The greatest of these kingdoms are the names we've heard and will become most familiar with Khotan, Kucha, Turpan, Lolan, Aksu, Kashgar, Yarkand, Karasar, and others. These are the city names we'll keep hearing clear through till the end of this series. I'll try to be consistent with these names. They all have Chinese names, Persian names, Uyghur names, Mongol names, and you know the different names used by different scholars. And because they competed with each other in the lucrative, silk road trade, and for other reasons too. These oasis states didn't form, you know, like a United Arab Emirates to combine their political and financial power. Distance from each other and their own self-interest prevented them from ever forming defensive alliances. So individually, they were always easy meat for the Chinese army back in the first century and for the Xiongnu as well. By the time Ban Chao had subdued the last Tarim Basin Kingdom, China's yoke was firmly put back in place. This meant two things. First, the trade routes between Han China, Central Asia, India, Persia, and the Eastern Mediterranean were secure on their end. You know how you'll hear the uh, U.S. Navy patrols the seas, keeping the sea lanes open for international trade, you know, from whatever. This was the case with a strong China presence out in those western regions. No one single troublemaker could upset the status quo as long as they faced Chinese troops. Besides maintaining the peace out in those parts, those Han Dynasty soldiers garrisoned out there extended and fortified the Great Wall all the way up to the end of the Hexi Corridor. And there they established these Tuntian state farms that I told you about last episode, as well as forts, uh, signal beacons, outposts manned with sentries, and a whole brigade of interpreters familiar with all the major tongues of the Silk Road. So, thanks to this Chinese imperial sponsorship, it all facilitated this two-way economic and cultural cornucopia of riches. If anyone west of the Tarim Basin, wanted to do anything to cause a break in the supply chain, they had to deal with Ban Chao's army. And this was one belt, one road in its most primitive form. By the way, a little bit of Ban Chao uh, trivia for any Chinese speakers out there. He's the guy who's credited with the immortal cheng yu of Buru Ru Hu Yan De Hu you can't catch tiger cubs without entering the tiger's lair, the Chinese version of our nothing ventured, nothing gained. That came from Ban Chao, straight out of the Ho Han Shu. And trust me, someone this important, he got his own chapter in that book. And I mentioned Ban Chao's brother and sister and father were all these renowned scholars, wrote the book of Han. Well, another famous Cheng Yu attributed to Ban Chao was Tuo Bi Cong Rong to cast aside the pen, to join the military, to give up literary pursuits for a martial life. Ban ladies and gentlemen. Hey, uh, I'm still paying eight bucks a month to the good folks at Libsyn to keep those 30 episodes of the Chinese Sayings podcast live in all the podcast apps. Go check that out for more history. There's a story behind everything. Even after four years, Cathay Pacific still carries those shows in their in flight entertainment system. There was more to the plan to maintain a strong military presence in the western regions besides keeping the Silk Roads safe for trade. Having Han Chinese forces on site to lean on everyone, and sure, the tribute from these competing states kept flowing in the direction of Luoyang, the eastern Han capital. There was a lot of nice stuff being traded back and forth along the Silk Roads, and this Unofficial arrangement led to China keeping the peace out there, and whoever wanted to be left alone paid obeisance to the Han emperor and sent tribute according to the custom. Even for the Chinese imperial government, this was not chump change, and the Han court depended on it heavily. A great deal of the luxury and exotica that decorated the emperor's palaces came as tribute from these trading entrepots of the Tarim Basin. Not everyone anxiously joined up to pay tribute to the Han Emperor, the three kingdoms of Kashgar, Yarkhan, and Khotan. They resisted. These were the saka speaking parts of the southwest rim of the Tarim Basin, where they spoke the Indo-Iranian language that differed from what was spoken on the opposite side of the Tarim Basin in the north, where the Indo-European languages were more prevalent. These Saka-speaking places were the most powerful and richest of these Xinjiang kingdoms. We're going to circle back and look at them individually, plus a few others later on. Each place had its own history going on that wasn't necessarily tied to what was happening in China. There's way more to the history of Xinjiang than what I'm telling you in this long-winded series. Again, I'm trying to tell it from the perspective of Chinese history. This being the, you know, China history podcast and all. So, much more later on regarding the kingdoms of Khotan, Kashgar, Yarkhand, and others. Let's get out of the Han Dynasty alive first. To make nice with these Tarim kingdoms and states, between 74 and 75, Ban Chao had gone on a diplomatic offensive all over the basin and got all these key cities, kingdoms, and whatnot to sign up and join the Han fight against the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu in 75 CE, in a major offensive against Ban Chao's forces, tried to smash this base they had set up just inside Xinjiang and push them back to the other side of the Hexi corridor in Gansu. But the alliances Ban Chao had made in the region prior to the Xiongnu offensive proved to be the deciding factor in defeating the Xiongnu and pushing them back north again, beyond the Tianshan Mountains. With Ban Chao's heavy hand, by 84 CE, these lands were solidly under Han control. Just over the Xinjiang border was the Kushan Empire. If you recall, these were the Yuezhi people who The Xiongnu had pushed out of western Gansu to the Ili Valley and then into the gorgeous Fergana Valley, where, after they were Hellenized and fought amongst themselves, they became known as the Bactrian speaking Guishuang, from which it is believed we get Kushan. Now, when I say Hellenized, I mean the inhabitants there adopted many Greek ideas, culture, and customs, as these were former lands conquered once by Alexander the Great. It was only natural that some of that Greek-Macedonian influence remained. When the Yuezhi were pushed into this region, they adopted some of these Hellenic aspects, including language and alphabet. We saw that from the coins they left behind that were dug out of the ground. I don't want to wander too far off the Yellow Brick Road. The Kushan Empire lasted from the 1st to 4th century and stretched from this Fergana Valley, also known as Sagdia, and later Transoxiana, all the way down to northern India, including a big part of Afghanistan. They were chopped up and ceased to exist by 375. As far as China is concerned, the Kushan Empire played a starring role as an early repository of Buddhist learning to Central Asia, from whence this hot religion from India was brought to China, and from China to Korea, Japan, and Vietnam. So, 92 CE is the year that Ban Chao was made the Xi Yu Du Hu, the Protector General of the Xi Yu, the Western Region, which again was essentially everything west of the Yumen Pass, the Jade Gate in Gansu Province, just beyond historic Dunhuang. By then, thanks to the leadership of Ban Chao, The whole of the Tarim Basin, as I mentioned already, was in the bag for Han China. The China government set up an administrative center in Kucha, which the Book of Han said was the most populous and productive city in the region and had a population of 81,317. Although I'm sure a lot of these places surrounding the Tarim Basin felt some pain, overall, Ban Chao was popular and got on well with the key leaders. Anyway, by 95 CE, it was written, not the 36, but the 50 kingdoms had submitted to Ban Chao, and it had been written in these ancient histories that there were as many as 55 of these Silk Road kingdoms that had sprung to life since the time of Di. 36, 50, 55, the exact number isn't important. They were all interacting with each other and constantly shifting the political landscape. By the first century CE, Silk Road trade was already nice and mature, and wherever there's lots of wealth, there's plenty of covetous neighbors sizing them up all the time. There was plenty of churn and burn with respect to the histories of these individual places rimming the Tarim Basin, and most of them disappeared into the sands of the Taklamakan Desert. But we know about most of the greatest ones. Now, this isn't related to our story per se, but I wanted to quickly mention this other event that Ban Chao is remembered for. This was the mission to Rome that he initiated in the year 97. He sent one of his envoys, named Ganying, to the west to establish relations with the Parthians in that westernmost part of Central Asia, nestled in between the Middle East and India, and stretching all the way to the western Xinjiang border. The Parthians were the eternal middlemen in the silk trade. No matter how much the Romans and the Chinese dreamed of direct trade with each other, the Parthians, they wouldn't have any of it. If Roman importers wanted Chinese silk, in the first centuries of the Common Era, they had to get it from their enemy, Parthia. Besides hooking up with the Parthians, Ganying was also tasked with carrying a message to the emperor in Rome or Da as it was called back then. Nerva was the emperor till 98, followed by Trajan. In any case, Gan Ying didn't get to meet either of them. He only made it about as far as the Black Sea, or some say the Eastern Mediterranean. An interesting footnote to the times, like Zhang Qian, he came back to the home country with a whole lot of intel. So, from becoming the Duhu of these western regions in 92, lasting all the way till his retirement in 102 and his subsequent death immediately after, Ban Chao ensured the Tarim Basin region remained part and parcel of the Han Empire. So we saw how after Han Wu Di had built up an empire that stretched into the Tarim Basin, it only took three Han emperors before that grip loosened and all was lost. But thanks to Ban Chao and his great military and diplomatic victories during the Eastern Han emperors Ming and Zhang, China had been able to replant the Han flag in the Tarim Basin and other parts of Xinjiang as well. Now, in the Eastern Han, under the reign of Han Hedi. 88 to 106 CE, this is not long after the passing of Banqiao, Chinese control and management of the region began to collapse, just as the Chinese state itself was starting to become unglued. As the years got closer to the 3rd century, the moment was almost upon the Chinese nation, made so famous by Luo Guanzhong's immortal line, The Empire, Long Divided, Must Unite, and long united, must divide. This part of the eastern Han was up ahead, not far in the distance. In 107, there had been an uprising in the region that saw two of Ban Chao's sons, Ban Yong and Ban Xiong, being sent out west to bring the fight to the Xiongnu and clean up that mess. Yeah, those brothers ended up getting shellacked and had to make a hasty retreat back east, and once they vacated the area... Well, that pretty much spelled the end of Han hegemony over the whole Xinjiang region, for a while anyway, into the 120s. The Han were once again displaced, and the Xiongnu became dominant in the region and were able to feast once more with feeling on those tribute payments. The Han court of Emperor An was torn between opposing factions who said Xinjiang wasn't worth the effort and those who said it was vital to the state. Banyong, who had grown up there and was intimately aware of Xinjiang's strategic and economic importance to China, remained as committed as his father to integrate these Western regions into the Han Chinese Empire. Banyong got his chance in 123 CE to take over control of the Turpan Basin region, and like his father once did, build up alliances with these various trading entrepôts to once again take the fight to the Xiongnu, and push them back to where they once belonged, north of the Tianshan Mountains. Yeah, having grown up in Xiyu, these western regions, Yong was the perfect diplomat, and he went to the kingdoms of Shanshan, Shan, Gu Mo, that's today's Ruoqiang, uh, and Xiuci, and Aksu, and one by one, between 126 and 127, he brought these kingdoms over to his side. Then it was written in 126, the six kingdoms of Zhishu all bowed to Han. These were six kingdoms north and east of Turpan. And in Kucha, Banyong set up his protectorate from which Xinjiang was administered and relations with Han China carried out. Now more about this place Zhishu in part five. So that's the story of Chao and Banyong, a father and son team who used their wiles diplomatic ways, fighting spirit, and quick thinking to push the Han dynasty's borders and influence all the way to Xinjiang and beyond. They provided the security, administration, and general Pax Sinica to the region that kept things relatively peaceful, which enabled this rapidly growing two-way trade between East and West to thrive. Okay, I think I've blathered on long enough. Three Kingdoms period to the start of the Sway. That's what's up next, and is that ever complicated? If you stay up all night wondering how you can support the CHP, there's two ways. Patreon.com slash China History Podcast. Get access to all kinds of racy bonus material and early access to future CHP episodes, or... If you just want to contribute one lump sum and be done with it, there's the official CHP PayPal donation center at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. Enter any amount, hit enter. You'll have my eternal gratitude. You could also be like listener Felix in Berlin, who did both. Hit me up with a very generous sum on PayPal and subscribe to the CHP Patreon page. Danke, Felix. I know a lot of you uh, keep asking me if I can accept WeChat pay. I'd love to, but I have no idea how to do that. But maybe one day. Okay, that's all I got for you this time. Already three episodes in and we haven't even gotten to the Tang Dynasty. I better pick up the pace a little. The best is yet to come. Let me tell you that right now. Okay, Laszlo Montgomery signing off from sunny L.A. Have you planned your summer vacation yet? Come on out to Los Angeles and say good day. If the all-clear signal has been given by mid-June, we can go celebrate the CHP 10-year anniversary together. Until then, please consider coming back again in two weeks' time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.